Welcome to the Well Stylist Podcast, a podcast for women who want to elevate their thinking, increase their confidence with money, and discover the path to building a meaningful business. I'm your host, Natasha Campbell, founder of WellStylist.com, money expert, speaker, and coach. I'm not your average money expert. That's because I aim to do more than to teach you how to budget and save for your audacious goals. Women like you come to me to live happier, financially healthier, and more fulfilled in life. If you're ready to design the life that you love, then you're in the right place. I am super excited to have Courtney Richardson. She is the founder of The Ivy Investor. The Ivy Investor was created as a resource to break down Wall Street in simple terms for African Americans. With 15 years of experience in financial services, Courtney has a wide range of experience in retirement, consumer banking, high net worth advising, and taxes. She is a former stockbroker and investment advisor. Courtney holds a doctorate of law from West Virginia University College of Law and a master's in taxation from Temple University Beasley School of Law. She has provided financial and legal commentary for AOL, The Huffington Post, Wealth Noor, MyFab Finance, and more. Let's tune in to today's episode. Okay, guys, so we have Ellen Courtney here on the Wealth Stylist Podcast, and I am super excited to have Courtney. She is a personal friend of mine. Um, she's always operating in excellence when it comes to investing, talking about estate planning, and taxes. And so it's a delight and a treat to have her join us today um, so that we can talk about investing for beginners. So welcome, Courtney. Thank you for having me. Not a problem. Um, and I know we spoke a little bit before we actually started our podcasting, just catching up on um, on some things. And I, I believe I shared with you, when I first started um, investing in my early 20s, I was working for a corporation, and I didn't want to let go of my coins. I didn't want to give them the or even invest in my future by giving up 2%, 3% so that I can get free money, which would be the company's match. And I didn't have the right mindset um, to help me to support the decision, the right decisions to make when it came to investing. So at that moment, I was thinking more about, you know, getting my nails done, getting my hair done, the latest shoes, um, and so much has changed since that point. And so I want to just share with the listeners, you know, how we can overcome um, maybe some myths with uh, investing, how we can invest uh, in a healthy way, how we can shift our mindset to move us closer to our goals. And so we're just going to go ahead and have an open discussion about that. And so I know with you, you have the brand, the Ivy Investor, and I just want you to share with me how was that Created. What was the purpose behind it? What was your personal journey, your mission, and your vision for the brand that you created? Well, that's that's a funny story. When I initially started the Ivy Investor, it really didn't have a mission or a purpose. I mean, let me clarify. It didn't have a mission. The purpose was to really just help my friends kind of go through financial life changes. Mm. 
So I started the finance, the IV investor, like in my, in about four years ago. So I was like in my early 30s, and a lot of my friends, um, I actually just got out of law school maybe two years before then, and a lot of my friends who kind of like worked straight through, didn't go back to school, were now looking for the next job. And they were like, Courtney, um, I need to do a rollover. You know, what does that mean? Um, where should I do it? Courtney, I'm about to have a kid. Um, what should I be doing to prepare? Should I be preparing for the college? You know, what should I be doing? Oh, I want to buy a house, you know, or I have a house. Or I want to kind of start doing something more. I have this 401K, and I don't know what to do with it. So I wanted to just address those kind of basic questions that everyone was asking me. But I was working at a law firm, and if you know anything about law firms, like you're required to bill my my requirement was billing 1,800 hours a year. So it was a lot of, I mean, it's a lot. It's a lot. So I didn't have time to kind of sit down and explain to my friends, like, okay, this is what a rollover is. This is how you do it. Like, I just didn't have the time. But it was such, it was important information. I was like, okay, okay, okay. Let me get you this blog. Let me get you this kind of like a primer on how to do it. If you have questions, get back to me, and then I'll kind of walk you from, like, the base, you know, from your base knowledge. Because I, what I noticed is that a lot of my friends didn't have, like, the base knowledge of what's the difference between a 401K and a 403B or what's a 457 or what's a TSP or, um, like, any of those things. So it was a conversation, and it was, like, alphabet soup to them. So you had to at least understand kind of, like, the car you're driving, but, you know, is it stick ship or is it a manual? So that's where we were. Uh-huh, that's how the uh-huh. IBM got started. Oh, I love that, how you were a resource to your friends, and you noticed the questions that they were asking, and so you decided to turn that into a blog to give them the foundational tips that they needed to understand just the basic principles of, you know, some of the terminology when it comes to um, investing. That's really awesome. I love that. I love that. And so for some people who want to invest and they see investment, as something that might be complicated, what are some things to consider before anyone actually starts investing? Like, uh, is it a mindset? Um, Of course, you know, should they have a spending plan in place? Um, What are some of the things that they need to consider before they actually start investing um, for for someone that's just starting? So you hit a lot of good points in terms of mindset and kind of things that should be doing. So the biggest thing is a mindset shift, moving from being a consumer to being an investor. Uh-huh. That's the biggest, like that's the crux uh-huh. of it because I, we uh-huh. consume so regularly and on a, we, on a regular basis we consume. And it's such ingra- it's ingrained as a part of our life. So you're like, okay, I, I know. I go to the store. I buy these things. Okay. But who's the company that actually sells what you're buying? Can you, can you get a piece of that company? Can you um, all the time, all the money that you spent into that company, is there a way for you to get kind of a return on your, quote, investment? Because as a consumer, you're investing in the company because you're buying their product. But you're not really That's getting true. the benefits of the investor because you're not an owner. So you're not getting dividends mm. the company owns it. And let's talk about what a dividend is. A dividend is just a disbursement of the company, the company giving you some of their profits. That's all it is. They're saying, hey, we're uh. profitable this quarter, and we're going to share our profits with our owners, which is you. Or you have what's called capital gains. So when you have capital gains, it's just basically the value of your investment increasing over time. So if I purchase something at $100 and then 
I turn around, it's $150. My capital gain is $50. So those are things that are, it's really very, very much a mindset thing at first. Is that I can, uh-huh. and, and the fact that you can do it. So moving from uh-huh. becoming a consumer to being an investor, but the fact of I can become an investor. So I uh-huh. think that's the biggest thing is I can become an investor and then moving the mindset from consumer to investor. Um, because I think a lot of people kind of even like stop before they get started because they're thinking like uh-huh. I can't be an investor. Being an investor is for rich people. I'm not rich, so therefore I can't be an investor. Oh no, that's not the case at all. Uh, so, but I think that kind of thought process is the beginning. But the next thing is that you got to have a spending plan in place. And I say, uh-huh. I tell people generally is that investing is like excellent. You know, it's something that you do daily. So it's part of it has to be part of your your, your spending plan. You make it, you allocate a portion of your um, your spending plan to investment. And at first, it's uh-huh. probably not going to be a lot if you have other obligations that you need to take care of. But as time goes on, you can increase that investment uh-huh. line item. And that's kind of, and that's that's kind of how you make it work. Uh, I love that. Moving the mindset from consumer to investor. And that goes to my story of being wanting to get my hair and nails done versus <laughs> investing in my future and getting my and tapping into free money that was available to me, but I couldn't see it as free money because I was still thinking as a consumer at that time versus as an investor. And then another um, big key that you talked about is that um, we want to make sure that we give each dollar a purpose. So having a money plan is definitely important so that we know how much we can allocate towards our investment goals. And so if you don't have a money plan in place, Please, please, please do that today. If you are listening to this, do that today. If you don't have a money plan in place, that is one step that you can take to move you forward in the direction of your goals. And if you have a family, take time to create a family money plan together and talk about what are your needs, what are your wants, and what are some of your goals that you have towards your financial future. And so those are some great things that you talked about, making sure that you shift your mindset, having a um, money plan in place, and so once I do those two things, what would be the next step for me to get started? Um, I tell people to, well, there's a couple of things going on. So you have your retirement accounts, which are usually set up with your employer. So that kind of has its own whole universe, which we'll probably catch up with on, uh, a little bit later in the conversation. But in terms of kind of doing what we call what's taxable investment, so basically I'm going to take money out of my savings account and invest it in the stock market. If I'm going to do that, you need to invest in what you know. A lot of people uh. want to get stock tips. They're like, hey, what should I invest in, Courtney? I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. Investing is very personal. Like personal finance is personal. So it's uh-huh. investing. Because what I know and what I understand is completely different than what you know and what you understand. And I think we have to find value in the space and what we offer to the world in terms of our expertise. And there's always a way to invest in your expertise. Um, I like uh, nurses because I think they're the easiest to kind of like say, okay, you know your expertise. So I tell nurses all the time, like, okay, you do regular routine patient fix, and you know what needles you absolutely hate to deal with, and you know what company they come from. Because you're like, you know what, I hate uh-huh. these needles. They always break. There's something always wrong with them. I don't like them. But these needles, they're amazing. I love them. Why don't we get them more? <laughs> you know, and I think 
it's just as simple as that because the question is, okay, the needles that you love, what company makes them? You know, what, first of all, what makes those needles so amazing? But the next thing is what company okay. actually owns them and can you invest in them? Because there's not, and not every company that exists is a, pub, is a public company, meaning that you can invest uh. in them. Like anybody in the world can invest in them. Um, sometimes you have private companies, which means that they, like I tell, people, I tell my investors, you have to be invited into their sandbox. So if I'm a private company, I don't have to <laughs> take anybody's. <laughs> I don't have to take anybody's uh, like investor. That. You know, so I I can pick it. I can be picky and I can be choosy. And there's uh, securities and exchange commission rules about who um, is called an accredited investor if they can invest in a um, a company that's not publicly traded. Um, but for example, you have like your WalMarts, you have your Amazons, you have your McDonald's. We can name a whole bunch of. Um, publicly traded companies that you can invest in. So it's a question of, like, what, um, you know, what is it that you love? What do you really enjoy? What do you understand? Because that's, you should never invest in anything that you don't understand. And then the next thing is, right, can right. you invest in it? Is, it? is it a public company? And then that's kind of, like, where uh-huh. you start. That's the first thing you start um, in terms of, you know, can I, how to start investing. It's like, what can I, can I, do I understand it, and can I invest in it? Those are your threshold questions. Uh, okay. Okay, so those are really good points that you touched on, making sure that you understand what you're getting ready to invest in. So it's like doing the pre-work, like researching the information to decide if this would be a good fit for you, and then looking at some of the things that you already enjoy and love and looking to be an investor into that particular company. So um, those are two points. Then once I have that information, do I need to start thinking about some goals when it comes to investing? Um, especially when it comes to if I want to be a hands-on investor or hands-off investor. Could you talk a little bit about um, the two and then also the tolerance? Because I know with some people, they don't have a high-risk tolerance. And so what is, what is something that um, – what is how can you speak to those individuals to help support them? Okay, so the biggest – I love that you talk about goals, investing goals. I tell people to begin with the end in mind. And what that means is that when I, I'm investing in this particular company, like where do I see this company fit? Like am I investing in this company forever? Or am I investing in this company because I think that there's an opportunity that I want to take advantage of? And that opportunity, if that opportunity were to go away, would I then sell the company? So that's kind of the way I look at things. Um, And I think it's really important to kind of talk about um, how I've changed as an investor. I've been investing since 2004. And how I've changed it as an investor as a result of the financial services industry, we're, we were taught to basically buy and hold forever. Like that's what we were taught. And the reason why we were taught that is not necessarily that it was the best thing for an investor. It's because early in, in the late 80s, there was what they called churn and burn. So they would um, brokers would buy and sell stocks. And commissions back in the day were like super expensive, like $50 a trade they would um, trade customer client, customer accounts excessively to kind of get the commission to pad their pockets. 
So they were so after a while they said we're disfavoring this whole trading idea. So you buy it and you hold it forever. So as opposed, you don't have to worry about you know a lot of commission trading going on to figure out is are these trades appropriate? Are they not appropriate? Are they doing it just to generate commission, or does the client really need to sell out of that position? So there was a lot of that. So it's been basically for me to unlearn that whole I need to buy and hold everything forever. Um, so I have two. I have two buckets. So like I said, begin with the end of mind. When I go into looking at a company, I'm like, do I love this company and will I like to hold it forever? So as Warren Buffett says, if the stock market shut down for ten years, would I be okay holding this company? And that's that. Okay. And that's kind of the way I think about it. Like, am I? I'm okay. Like, I love Starbucks coffee. Like, I absolutely positively love Starbucks coffee. I became, like, a Starbucks fan <laughs> when I was in law school because it kept me up. It really, like, there was nothing uh-huh. else that could keep me up like Starbucks coffee. So I became a fan. So I started investing in Starbucks company, co- um, the company, and I liked their business philosophy. I liked the way they did uh-huh. business overall. So I said, okay, and I liked the, their commitment to the earth. I liked their commitment generally, like how they uh-huh. just did business. So I said, okay, I want to hold this company forever. And there's some other okay. companies that I say, you know what? They they have I don't they have an opportunity, but I don't know if I want to hold it forever. So that's some a company that I may want to consider trading out of. But so I have two okay. things going on. I have my buy and hold forever, and then I have my my you know maybe some maybe someday in the near future if these if the conditions are right and I feel like I made a good profit, I may get out. So it just depends. So there's two things there. So that's what they why I talk about beginning with the end in mind. Like what do you, how do you envision this company, how it fits in your portfolio? Um, and then you also asked mm-hmm. about risk tolerance. I like to right. let's talk about risk tolerance and risk capacity because I think a lot of us get those two confused. So risk tolerance is, is emotional. It's like what you feel like uh-huh. you can emotionally handle. <laughs> now uh-huh. risk capacity is what you actually as an investor can handle. And those two things don't normally coincide. Our risk tolerance is usually well uh, well below our risk capacity. Like I've talked to, I've talked to like thirty year olds who said, you know, Courtney, I don't want to lose any money. Okay, neither do I. <laughs> but you know, but they also will have a bulk of their portfolio in cash. You're thirty years old. We we can't. You're oh, wow. not going to keep keep up with inflation. You know, if yeah. you're in cash, you're you're going to be you're basically eroding the value, the purchase value of your your money, and you need this money to actually grow so you're functional in retirement. So uh-huh. I like to have that conversation. So I really put people through like, what is your capacity? How old are you? And we talk uh-huh. on that level. And so I say, okay, if you're 30 years old, um, to be conservative, you know, um, I take 30 minus 100. That gives me 70. So you should probably be closer to 70% in stocks and 30 in bonds. Now, if you want to be a little bit more aggressive, you can. But the base, if you're, if you're 30 or in your 30s, 70-30. And I think a lot of people look at that. And when I say um, companies, I say stocks, so that's ownership in a company. And then bonds is basically owning a company's debt or a government's debt. Uh-huh, so they uh-huh. um, so bonds give you a regular um, it's basically a regular payment that they're paying you and then at the end of the term of the bond then they pay you back in full or whatever um, so if you have a thousand dollar bond and I don't know I will I won't tell you the interest rate but you get five dollars a month until the bond is up so you get five dollars a month so that's your income and then at the end of the term of the bond you get the thousand dollars back so in the end your investment was thousand dollars plus 
that $5 a month you have for whatever time period. So it's kind of a consistent stream of income. That's what the bond is. Now your stocks, they go up and down on a regular basis based on what the market uh-huh, is doing. Uh-huh. So, but hopefully you have some stocks that give you dividends, which is hopefully what we consider like a regular payment, which is every quarter usually. Um, sometimes companies will pay it on a yearly basis, but not every company pays dividends. You know, it's again, every company, they – Although a company may have profits, they may not choose to share it with their shareholders because they're like, listen, shareholders, we want to grow the company, so we need to use our profits to grow the company. So we're not going to distribute the profits uh, to you. We're going to put it somewhere else. Uh, okay, okay. So to kind of wrap sense. up on the capacity versus tolerance, your capacity is what <laughs> you emotionally can deal with. And there's like no, cry, like there's no crying in baseball, there's no crying in investments. So take your emotions out of it. So look at your capacity. What can you actually afford? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I think over time, because I know with myself personally, um, when I first started uh, to get more seriously involved into investing and I I sit with my CFP, my certified financial planner, that was one of the questions Mm -hmm. that came up um, about my risk tolerance. And in the beginning, I wanted to be very conservative, although I was very young. Um, and she had to kind of put things in perspective for me. Now I'm at the point where I'm just like, okay, <laughs> you know, whatever needs to happen, let it happen, because over time the market usually does pretty well, and I had time mm-hmm. on my hand, so I wasn't really concerned about it because this was more of a decade type of investment for me. Um, so I loved how you talked about the risk tolerance um, and the capacity um, of what you can actually um, are capable of when it comes to your investing. And then you talked about making sure that with, when you have your goals in place, looking at companies, whether you want to hold um, forever, and you talked about Starbucks, which is a great example, a great example, or uh, a company that you want to buy and let go. Um, and I love how you phrased it in the example. So that was really key. So knowing the goals, understanding the risk. Um, also, I wanted to ask you about target funds. What is your thought on that? Um, I, hmm, I don't love them. Um, target okay. funds are what basically are like a fund. Usually they're fund of funds, so it's a mutual fund in another mutual fund. Um, uh-huh. which I don't really love. Um, now let me let's let's go back. Target funds are are uh, calibrated, are set up to kind of um, based on your retirement year, your retirement well, your retirement year. It's set up. It gives you a particular allocation based on your retirement year. And as you get closer uh-huh. to retirement, it rebalances to be more conservative. Um, so okay. that's a good thing, and that's what you should do as an investor. I say about every 10 years, eh, probably every five years, you should kind of start changing your allocation to be a little bit more conservative. Um, I think a lot of people get excited when the market's going up. Everybody wants to be in the market. If the market's going down, nobody wants to be in the market. But kind of keeping your emotions out of it and saying, okay, I'm 15 years of retirement. I need to be a lot more conservative than when I was 30 years from retirement. So putting it in, in that perspective. Um, but the target funds do that, but there's a cost to it. So it's like a cost of, you know, doing business. Um, even with mutual funds, it's a cost of doing business. Um, so a target fund is 
is putting funds, like mutual funds in your plan, in your retirement, your 401K, 403B, 457, it kind of puts them in a basket, and that basket, kind of the person or the tool that's reallocating um, it to make it more conservative over time, has a cost associated. So um, I really uh-huh. like people to kind of go to the index funds in their 401K, 403B, or 457, and just use those and base it on the allocation that's appropriate for their age. So if they're in their 40s, they may want to do a 60-40. 60 um, in stocks, which would be like a stock index fund or an S&P index, and then um, a bond index. Um, I would say, like, you know, some most plans will have what's called an aggregate bond fund, which is kind of all the bonds put together, all the types of bonds put together. And what I mean by all the types of bonds. So with bonds, it's kind of like with debt. And I think we're all very familiar with credit. Um, so when you're uh-huh. saying when you have um, treasury bonds, treasury is the is basically governmental debt. So it's the government's debt. So it's pretty much the safest debt that's out there. Now, I mean, we, we all can kind of have political differences about that, but that's traditionally <laughs> and kind of in the industry what is the safest debt. So then next you have, like, corporate bonds that have um, – We'll say municipal bonds, maybe. Eh, meh. We'll say corporate municipal bonds. But it just it starts looking at people's cre- like a corporation's or a city or a county's credit, and the better uh, and basically better they pay, the better they have it on a repayment schedule. The bet the lower interest rate their bond is going to be. So, but it but on the flip side is that the more reliable and more predictable this money is coming in for you as an investor. So, and then you have kind of like your medium bonds that are um, in medium term in terms of length and then also medium in terms of what we call credit rating. So, again, as you get more, uh, you know, think about it this way. If you have bad credit, you if you can get approved for a loan, you're going to have a really, really high interest rate. Same thing with bonds. Uh-huh. If you are a, com- a company or a government, like a city government, a, a county government, a state government, and you, got to, and you and those companies or that government has a problem paying their debt, they're going to get charged a higher interest rate because you may or may not get paid. So the person, the investor taking on that risk is going to say, okay, I'm going to take you on as a risk, but I need more money back. Same thing with us if we have bad credit. The company's going to say, hey, I'm going to take you on as a risk, but what I need from you is you're going to have to pay me more interest. Same concept. So the aggregate bond fund kind of combines the government, the good government, you know, the safest uh, debt out there to all the way, like some a little bit of junk, which we call it kind of adds some um, adds, we don't want to call it alpha because that's not really what it is, but it adds a little bit of oomph to the bond portfolio. It gives it a little bit of um, a little bit more than just kind of like two percent or three percent. But again, you know, it kind of puts it all together in a basket, and that's what they call an aggregate bond fund. Now, on the other side, when you have the S and P five hundred, it's basically five hundred stocks that are traded on the exchanges. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So it's kind of like a basket, but it's an index. So an index uh-huh. is so you have passive aggressive passive investing and uh, active investing. So when you have a passive, you basically are just using a guide, which is an index, and that's the uh-huh. the guide is telling you exactly what to put. It's kind of like you're using a recipe, like you're using a box cake. You're like, okay, I have a box cake, uh, and the box cake okay. tells me I need two, I need two um, eggs, I need a little bit of oil, I need butter. I'm gonna mix it up, and I, voila, uh-huh. I have a I have a cake. Now the cake, the box cakes. I mean, some box cakes are amazing, some aren't. But you basically get, <laughs> you know, you get the whole point is to have uh-huh. cake, so you have a cake. So that's your index. Uh-huh. You know, you're pretty much following the instructions of whatever the index is. So whatever's in the the S&P 500 is whatever the S&P index is going to have in it. Now, conversely, if you have an actively managed fund, this is like your baker. 
you're a baker, you know, you're going to pay, you pay more for a baker baking a cake than you do a box cake because the baker, mm-hmm. you're relying mm-hmm. on their expertise to give you an amazing cake. You're like, yes, I'm going to get this red velvet with this creamy cheese, you know, cheese, cream cheese frosting, uh-huh, uh-huh. fluffy, and you're, you're, you're thinking, you're like, I know exactly, and I'm going to go to this baker, and I'm going to pay a premium because I know I'm going to get better than a box cake. Same thing with, uh, with active investing. You're paying the manager more because you feel like you're going to get better than what the index is. However, uh, um, studies have shown that the active managers over time don't outperform the index on a regular basis. And that's oh, what you're paying okay. the active managers to do, you know? So if you're uh-huh, paying them uh-huh. to outperform the index, you're just better off getting the box cake, which is the passive investment, you know, with the index. Uh-huh. So that's why I say, you know, I prefer looking at getting an index for your stock allocation, so whatever your stock index is and whatever your bond index is, and just going with that. It, it takes some of the guesswork out of it, but it actually over the long term is probably the better uh, setup because one of the things that happens, you know, again, you're paying a premium for active management, like somebody, uh, a manager actively managing the stocks and the investments in a mutual fund. You're going to pay more, but they get paid regardless if they do well or not. So, and if over time, fees will eat away at your retirement. So you need every bit of, uh, I mean, and each um, index does have a fee, uh-huh. but you're having a difference between 0.08 as a fee, percent as a fee versus, uh, we'll say, 0.5 uh, percent as a fee. And that difference over time could be the difference between, you know, uh-huh. being fine in one year in retirement and not being fine in one year in retirement. So over the long run, that kind of really does erode at your wealth. So that's why I really suggest, I mean, especially index funds, I love them. I think they're great, and I think they work for retirement. Now, if we're looking at something on what we call the taxable side, then something else we're going to look at stocks, or we may look at ETFs. But on the other side, mutual funds are pretty much the – cheap mutual funds are the way to go in retirement. Okay. Cheap mutual funds are the way to go. Did you guys hear that? Cheap mutual funds are the way to go. And I love the analogy that you gave, the box cake or going to the baker. I think that really puts into into perspective for people to understand, you know, because investing can be an overwhelming topic in and of itself. It can seem complicated. But I love how you made it very easy and simple for the listeners to understand, especially when it comes to understanding the different types of um, investments that are available to someone. So I really love that. And then you touched a little bit on diversification. Could you explain what diversification is and why is that important to your portfolio? So diversification is um, kind of spreading out your and your money over multiple investments, and that's that's pretty much what it is. So how do I explain that in kind of common, simple terms? is that um, it's not putting all of your eggs in one basket. I mean, everybody uses that same uh-huh. analogy, but it's perfect. So, But when I, okay. I speak about um, diversification, I'm not just looking at the stock market. I'm not saying, oh, you know, you need to diversify with several different mutual funds. When you, when you diversify with several different mutual funds, invariably you're going to have some overlap. So if I'm looking at a large cap value mutual fund, um, and all my, my mutual funds are large cap values, they're basically going to be looking at the same stocks. There's only but so many large cap value stocks out there. Um, okay. And to clarify what a large cap value fund is, is a large cap is actually, I think it's a company that, a large cap company is, is short for large capitalization 
large capitalization is a company that their number of shares that they have outstanding the wolf, um, times their share price gives them a capitalization. Market uh, large market capitalization is going to be $10 billion and above. And then you have mega cap when you're looking at, like, um, you're looking at Amazon, you're looking at Apple, they're looking at getting, I think they said they're trying, they're almost at a trillion. And it's kind of like, which company is going to be faster oh. to a trillion? Either Apple or, Google, uh, or excuse me, Amazon. It's like the big question on, uh, you know, on the street. But again, I think uh -huh, it's really uh -huh. important. So that's when you're looking at these, that's, a mega, that's what we call like a mega cap, like super big. It's not just a large, it's mega. Um, but when you're looking at value, you're saying, okay, um, a manager is making a decision to say, this company is undervalued. So um, and because this company is undervalued, we think that we're buying it. So they're saying, we think, say the company is trading or you can purchase this company for $35 a share. But the analysts say, you know what, this company is really worth based on all we know about it, based on the news, based on their balance sheet. We think it's actually worth $50 um, a share. So there's like a gap of $50. So what they're saying is, okay, over time we feel like it's going to get to $50 a share, and we've actually made our investors $15 a share in the interim. So that's the whole thing of what we call a large cap value. It's, okay. so that's the, the short of it, and I don't want to make it any more difficult. But as, uh -huh, after uh -huh. a while, when you start looking at the kind of stocks that are available or the companies that are available on the stock exchange, there's not that many large cap values. So, again, you want to start looking at other companies. So I like looking at, like, sometimes I want to look at smaller companies, and not all the time. I want uh -huh. some companies that, you know, are tried and true, which we call, like, blue chip or large cap. They're tried and true. They've been on the market forever. Okay, those are companies I want to look at. I want to have some, comp I want to have some uh -huh. money there. Also, want to have some company, um, some companies that are kind of like up and coming. I don't want to put a lot of money in them because a lot of companies that are up and coming never make it on the come up, you know, when they go out of business. Uh, so okay. I want to put a lot of money there, um, uh -huh. but I want to put some because of the growth potential that those companies may have. Also, like I said, uh -huh. we talked about bonds. So bonds is, is me investing in a company or government's debt. But then also you have the ability of investing in real estate by using a real estate investment trust, which is just yeah. like um, it kind of functions as a, um, like I would say, it functions as an ETF. So it's a, but it's actually a basket of, you know, properties that are being traded on the stock exchange through a company. Um, and I like REIT um, generally, which is, again, a real estate investment trust, because they end up giving a lot of dividends because of the way the, the tax code is set up is that they are required to distribute about 90% of their profits to their, share, their shareholders. Um, oh, okay. So because of that, you know, they're getting a lot of dividends. So I like that. Yeah. But then also I, lo I like looking at other um, avenues in terms of, you know, like, okay, I want to look in a little bit, like kind of stick your toe in cryptocurrency. And But, again, you can't, you can't uh -huh. jump into it if you don't understand it. So you have to educate That's yourself true. about it. But you might say, okay, I've educated. I feel myself. I feel very comfortable with it. I might put a couple dollars in there and see what it does. So it's kind of like I put yeah. a couple dollars in. I don't feel bad if I lose it. Um, but also you, you, if you double it, you're like, oh, that's great. But I think where people uh -huh, end up uh -huh. going wrong is that they kind of, you know, they do what's the opposite of diversification is they put all their eggs in one basket. When that basket goes belly <laughs> uh -huh. up, then we all have problems. Yeah, that's so like, true. like all my eggs are broken. I'm like, that's true. 
Right. So it, it's wow, kind of like it's okay. about the balancing act, but it's a it's a growth thing. Uh, so you may start out investing, investing in one company, and you say, okay, I feel comfortable investing. Once I understand this next company, I feel comfortable investing in this next company, or I feel investing comfortable investing in this REIT. Like for example, um, King of Pressure Mall is in my area. That's owned by Simon Properties. Simon Properties is uh, the biggest like owner of malls in the United States. So I may say, uh-huh. oh, well, I'm going to look into Simon Properties and see if that's a good investment for me. Do I understand what they do? Okay, they buy, they own a lot of malls. They also own outlet malls. They also own all these things. So it's kind of like, okay, so I conceptually understand how that works. Okay, is this a good investment for me? Can I afford it? You know, can I afford, you know, maybe five shares of this particular stock? And if I don't, you know, do I want to keep it on my watch list to see if I can afford it, or do I want to save up for it? So it's also that's the other way of getting into investment. It's kind of figuring out if you, like, what is it? Can I, you know, can I get into it? But then can I afford it? Can I actually make the investment of something that's worthwhile? You know, or, like, and I say, like, five to ten shares is a good place to start. Okay, that's great. I love how you talked about that. Um, diversification, which means not putting all your eggs into one basket, which is very good. And I believe that that's important, especially when it when it comes to investing. And then you also talked about when you do decide to invest and making sure that you understand um, what the company does um, and looking at maybe five to ten investments, uh, excuse me, five to ten stocks that you would consider if you can um, afford to invest into that particular company, which are some really good points. Now, once you decide that, where are some great places that I can go to to start doing the work of investing? Should I go to an app? Should I move to a, uh, a brokerage company? What is, where would I go? What, would be the, um, what are some of the places that you would suggest? That's a good question. It's actually, I have amended my thoughts about this. Um, so I oh, actually okay. <laughs> I did, like today. Today I actually had a conversation with someone, and I wasn't a huge fan of apps. But um, the gentleman okay. explained it to me this way, is that an app is something we all feel very comfortable with. We use apps on a regular mm-hmm. basis. So to kind of stop the barrier to entry and kind of like that fear, to take the fear out of it, you give somebody what they're used mm-hmm. to, to kind of, you know, take okay. them to the next level of what they're not used to. Um, with that being said, you know, there's Robinhood, um, which I've used. Um, I've also used Stockpile. Stockpile is actually my favorite. I just think it's a lot, it's okay. very intuitive for me to use. Um, I've heard about Acorns. I've heard about Stash. I have not used them as of yet, but since a lot of people, I want to remove that barrier to entry. I'm going to kind of start playing around these apps just so I can kind of mm-hmm. point out okay. the things that I think investors should know. Um, so the apps are great to use at, kind of as a barrier to entry, I mean, to kind of remove the barriers to entry. Um, as you become a little mm-hmm. bit more sophisticated investor, um, a lot of with the apps, and one of the things that I don't love about Robinhood is that you're very limited with the types of accounts that you can open with them as it stands right now. Mm-hmm. So you can't open a okay. retirement account, and that's as of right now. Now, they have uh, stated in kind of a lot of their press releases that they are kind of rolling out additional functionality, but they're just not there yet. So um, the same thing with Stockpile. Stockpile is not – they can do custodial accounts, but they don't – I don't believe they have retirement accounts. So if you're looking at doing a rollover, for example, you are going to probably need to look at more of your standardized brokerage accounts, like your E-Trade, your um, Ally, which I really like because I think it's easy to use. Um, I use Merrill Lynch personally. 
Um, and then Ally Merrill Lynch, E-Trade, Scott Trade, uh, E-Trade, I think Scott Trade still exists. Um, Capital One Investing actually moved to E-Trade. Um, okay. So, I hope they're taking notes Trump with the names that you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> and Fidelity. So there, there are a couple out there um, that are available for you to kind of look into. But, again, like if you just kind of want to get your toes wet and kind of start feeling uh-huh. the investment world, the apps are great. Now, if you need something a little bit more sophisticated, like you need to do a rollover from a 401K or another employer account, you're going to have to kind of step uh-huh. into the big world and go into like a Fidelity, a Merrill Lynch, or something like that. And you can open uh-huh. all of those accounts online. So it makes it very, very easy, very but you're going to have to deal with a little bit more traditional type account. Now, I will say Stockpile does allow custodial accounts. So what that means is that those are accounts that are available to children that you can open on behalf mm-hmm. of a child because children cannot own property in their own name until they're of the age of majority, which in most states it's 18. I think one or two might be 21. But, again, like you um, – so if you have, like, a six-year-old that you want to purchase stock for, you're going to have to open a custodial account, and it's going to be, you know, your name for the benefit of, you know, the child. So you just have to be okay. mindful of um, how that needs to be done. But I don't – Robinhood doesn't offer it, but Stockpile does. So, again, some of those accounts, some of the functionality on the staff is not as much as you may need depending on what your needs are. Okay, and now what about the fees associated with the apps? Um, are the fees relatively larger compared to what you would expect at, like, Fidelity or Merrill Lynch? Um, have you looked at the fees when it comes to Stockpile and Robinhood? So Stockpile, well, Robinhood, let's start at the bottom. So Robinhood is actually okay. free. So the, the trades are free. So the trade-off is they don't have okay. a whole, they don't have a lot of, accounts that are available, but what they do have that you can purchase in those, those accounts for free. Um, Stockpile, I believe okay. their execution um, cost is, I think, $0.99 cents per trade. Um, mm. So it's it's a lot cheaper than what's available in, like, a Merrill Lynch um, or a mm-hmm. E-Trade. I believe E-Trade is four ninety five or six ninety five. Merrill Lynch, I definitely know, is six ninety five. I believe Fidelity and some of the other ones are four ninety five. Um, there was actually Charles Schwab is also four ninety five. Funny enough, um, last year sometime there was like a big fee war between kind of these online brokerage accounts. So everybody mm, for the most part okay. reduced their fees to be more competitive with what's called like with what is out there like in terms of your stockpile, in terms of your Robin Hood. They're like, Okay, how can mm. we reduce our fees? But what happens on the other side is that um, the more traditional brokerage accounts, you get all the benefit of their analysis and their kind of um, their analysis and all their information that they have available to their kind of more, we'll say, more wealthier clients. So I think you get the benefit of the information that you may not be avail- that may not be available to you outside on the internet. It's kind of reserved for these special clients that you get a piece of because you have your account there. Okay. So there's kind of like drawbacks and, and benefits, but it's mm-hmm. it's not an ongoing fee when, when you're purchasing stocks. You're, you're, um, there's a fee when you buy a stock and there's a fee when you sell the stock, but when you're holding it, there's not fee. There's no fee. Okay, and I love that. So Robinhood and Stockpile, definitely check those two out. Um, and then I wanted to ask you, uh, Courtney, because I know you also have a background in taxation. <laughs> You're like a woman of multiple gifts and talents. <laughs> and so when it comes to investing, you know, 
very quickly, what are some of the things that someone should consider when it comes to their taxes as far as the impact that it would have? Okay, so it depends in what where you are investing. Um, so okay. the way I like to explain it is that what what that where what basket are you in? Are you in a tax? Are you in a retirement basket? Or are you in a uh, what we call a taxable basket? So if you're in a retirement uh, basket, so that think of it that way of your IRA, that's in your retirement basket. Okay. Your 401k, retirement basket. 457, retirement. So just put it that way. And what we call those accounts are what are tax-deferred or tax-free accounts. Okay. So um, your tax-deferred account is um, your when money comes out of your paycheck and it's not taxed first. So, for example, if you make $100,000 and you contribute $10,000 to your 401K, the government only taxes you on 90000 of that money. So the benefit of that 10000 is that 10000 grows what we call tax-deferred, which means it's not taxed on the front end, but it, and it grows without being taxed um, over time. But when the money comes out of that retirement basket, you're going to pay ordinary income tax on it. And if you're, if you're under retirement age, which is 59 and a half, then you'll, you may be subject to a 10% penalty. And the reason being is the IRS says, listen, I'm gonna, they're going to allow you to save a certain amount of money without taxes, but, but here's the trade-off. You've got to use it for the purpose intended. If you don't use it for the purpose intended, okay. we're going to penalize you. So that's pretty much what you get for Okay. Um, and that's with okay. all your retirement accounts or your tax-deferred accounts. Now, in your retirement accounts, you also have the option of what's called a Roth. And a Roth is mm-hmm. a tax-free option. So, for example, yes. same $100,000, you make $100,000, you put $10,000 into your Roth retirement account. And this is at your employer because if you, it's a regular IRA, you, don't have, you can't put that much away. But we're in a regular retirement, 401K, you put $10,000 in your Roth account. Well... The government's going to tax you on on $100,000, so that 10 doesn't get any tax benefit on the front end. But on the back end, when that $10,000 grows, that money comes out completely tax-free. So that's the difference between your traditional, what we call tax-deferred, or your Roth, which is what we call tax-free, which you call tax-free, which isn't always tax-free. There's some rules and regulations. The money has to be in the account for five years. Um, and there's a couple of things that have to be done. But as long as you kind of do it the right way, um, then the money's going to come out tax-free. Now, on the okay. other side, what we call like our taxable basket basket. So okay. think of it like money you have in your savings account. So if I have money in my savings account, this money has already been taxed by the government, okay, because I've, I've taken it, it's my after-tax money. It's the money that comes out of my paycheck. I put it in an account, and I decide to purchase stock with it. So um, it, the government kind of makes a distinction at the year mark. So anything that if I purchase stock today, I purchase 100, mm-hmm. I'll say $100 worth of stock today, and Let's see. We'll say six months from now, that hundred shares, a hundred dollars of stock is now worth fifty dollars, and I decide to sell it. So I have one hundred fifty dollars in my in my hand. The government says that's mm-hmm. great. Um, we want to. T- we have to tax that fifty dollars of growth, and because you didn't hold it for a year mm-hmm. or more, we're going to tax you at your ordinary income tax, your ordinary income rate. So say I'm taxed at twenty five percent. So twenty five percent is what I'm going to be taxed at. And you're like, okay, which isn't in the world because it was $50 uh-huh. you didn't have, so whether they tax you on something or not, it's not a big deal. Uh-huh. However, if I purchase $100 of stock today and the same day or we'll say tomorrow of next year, I decide to sell it, 
that I'm only going to be taxed maybe 10% um, on my $50 because that's called a long-term capital okay. gain. So short-term capital gains, less than a year, long-term capital gains, more than a year. So the government, again, is kind of incentivizing you to make long-term investments. That's all it is. And either way, if you make money on the short term, you're making money. If you're making money on the long term, Mm -hmm. you're still making money. It's just a question of how much taxes you'll have to pay. Uh, Very great points. I love it. Very great points. Um, So you talked about three different baskets. Our taxable, we talked about the Roth IRA, and then we also talked about the employer's plan, the 401K, the 457, and how all of that affects someone's taxes. Great point. And I don't know how they got to the five fifty nine and a half. I always ask myself that question, like, how did we get to fifty nine and a half? Like, why not fifty nine, sixty? Just choose like a an age point. So fifty nine and a half is the go to age. Very great points, Courtney. I love how knowledgeable you are in that particular area. Now, I wanted to ask you um, another question, really quick. Um, should someone decide to select a retirement account over a non-retirement account? Like, for example, um, because some, so much of the intimidation is put up, um, a lot of certain, uh, certain groups don't invest as heavily as other groups. And most people use their checking account or their savings account as a retirement account versus actually doing making that investment. Can you talk about why that's not probably the best option, why that isn't the best option? Well, it's, it's not the best option because you're basically losing money. You're, you're losing mm-hmm. money on a couple of different fronts. So you're losing money because, like I talked about, the baskets. So you get a tax benefit mm-hmm. when you contribute to your retirement account. Um, and so you're, you're losing the tax benefit if you're going to keep it in the checking account. That's not what the IRS codes it to be, like a special type of account. So you're losing out on all the advantages of having an actual retirement account through the IRS's eye. The second thing, if you're in a checking account or a savings account, you're losing money in terms of opportunity costs. Uh, a savings account, I think the best I've heard that I've seen around <laughs> I think is like 1.3%. Mm-hmm. When the market really is averaging, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the market's averaging maybe 6%, 5% a year. So the difference between that is like, you know, 3%. And if you compound that over time, you're really losing a lot of money. And when we talk about, and you're like, probably like, well, what do you mean, like, I'm losing money? So over time, mm-hmm. there's what, what's called inflation. So what I purchased, what, what I was able to buy with $100 you know, in 2000 Uh is different than when I'm able to buy less um, with the same $100 in in 2018. So that same thing, and especially when you start looking out as far as retirement, you're saying, well, if I just put money, basically putting your retirement money in a a checking account or a savings account is basically like putting money under your mattress. You're losing money. Uh It's it's not really doing much for you. (laughs) So you're basically going to take it out of your mattress and say, okay, I'm going to try to go buy what I could when I initially put it under my mattress, and it's just not going to buy the same thing because it, you're uh-huh. not going to have uh-huh. enough money because inflation is kind of basically eroded, at, eroded away at the purchasing, uh-huh. um, the purchasing ability of your money. So, I mean, again, and so think about that on a large scale. You're just really losing out on money. So, I mean, I know a lot of people sure. are very fearful of the stock market, and I think uh-huh. that's a very uh-huh. fair thing that happens. And, you know, if it's a very 
it's a very thing that very fair experience to say, hey, I'm really afraid of the stock market. Um, you might want to look at ETF or you might want to look at something that, um, you know, ETFs are a little bit more um, diversified in terms of, and it's not something that you really need to make a whole, um, a whole kind of, you can say, okay, I'm interested in ETF. You can look at it through an index. You're like, oh, I want to ETF. I want to be invested in the stock market. I really don't know what company I'm interested in or that I want to choose as of yet. But you know, I want. I can look at the S&P 500 ETF index, and I'm involved in the market, so I'm not losing. No, I may. I might lose some money. I might because the market goes up and down, and I don't want to give the expectation that the market consistently goes up because it goes mm-hmm. up and down, kind of like a wave. So, um, uh-huh. but I just want to be very, be very mindful that over the long run is that the wave goes up. So even if you okay. get in, you know, you know, at a point that may be high. Now I, I think right now the market's really, really high. So I kind of haven't really been doing a lot of buying and selling. I've been doing a lot more selling than I have been buying. Um, but I haven't been doing a lot of buying. So like, ooh, the market's a little high. But again, it's <laughs> a, you know, putting it in a place where it's going to to actually have a potential of earning you money as opposed to being stagnant. So it's kind of like, you know, stagnant uh-huh. water smells after a while, right? Uh-huh, 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 very true. And I love the analogy of it's like putting your money under the mattress because, you know, I remember my grandmother, she would put money under the mattress. When she passed away, she had about $5,000 underneath her mattress. And, I mean, it was just sitting there, and I don't know how long it took her to, you know, collect $5,000, but it was just sitting underneath the mattress, and that could have been money that she, you know, was able to use to invest and do so many other different things, but it was sitting under the mattress. So that's why I was laughing because some people still do that today because they're, um, they feel like investing is a complicated process, but you shared some of the strategies that that anyone can use, especially for a beginner, that that can help them jumpstart their journey into investing, starting with apps, starting small, you know, um, understanding the purpose behind it. Um, I mean, there are so many different things that you touched on. So if you're at a point where you do feel fearful, um, check out the apps that she shared, Robinhood. I know Stockpile was one um, to kind of help you get jumpstarted on your journey. Um, And then I wanted to ask you, Courtney, if you could, um, this is going to be our closing, share three of your best strategies um, for anyone who um, or three things that you have seen um, while working with clients or what you've seen in the marketplace when it comes to uh, helping someone get into investing. Um, the biggest thing I think we hit it early on in the conversation is about mindset. Um, I, the okay. biggest thing in your way of before becoming an investor is you. Like, you are the reason why you're not an investor. And and that's okay, you know, but you have to kind of get out of your own way. I mean, we, we laugh and mm-hmm. joke occasionally and say, you know, fear is false evidence appearing real, but it really mm-hmm. is. Um, you know, cause we're all getting the benefit of investment, whether, you know, we're all kind of, I, I, not even that we're getting the benefit of investments. It's that investments are taking place around us, whether we jump in or mm-hmm. not. You know, it's kind yeah. of, you know, so yeah. it's, Either you jump in or, or you don't, but it's the, the only thing that's, that's stopping you is you. Um, and also, investing is, is a habit. It's, it's like just like excellence. It's something that you do on a regular basis. Um, a lot of people feel like, oh, I can invest this money and forget it. And you can, but it's something that you want to keep, mm-hmm. kind of continue. So it's about 
creating a legacy and having the conversation with your yeah. family. Because I think a lot of times we don't have conversations about money, about wealth yeah. in our families. And if we kind of, you know, instill at an early age that we save and we invest, I think we'll all be a lot better off in the long run. Um, mm. And then finally, it's just invest in what you know. Be a student of what you already love. So when I started looking at Starbucks as a company, I became a student of Starbucks. I became, it wasn't just about my caramel, my grande caramel macchiato with extra caramel, extra whipped cream. That's the way I like it. I like it with five times of vanilla. I will tell you exactly how I like it. And my Starbucks knows exactly, you know, what I like. Um, but I, it, it was, became bigger than that. It was like, what is their corporate philosophy? You know, what, how do they do business? How do they treat their customers? How do they treat their employees? And, I mean, and I'm from Philadelphia, and there was an earlier incident this year with, you know, some really interesting mm-hmm. things that happened mm-hmm. in Philadelphia with Starbucks. But what, I, what yes. made me, and people are like, oh, I'm going to sell my Starbucks stock. So I said, no, I, I said, I'm not, and these are the reasons why. I'm not selling my okay. Starbucks stock because I've never seen a a whole entire C-suite, which is a corporate suite, the, the CEO, CFO, CIO, I've uh-huh, never seen uh-huh. them descend on a city like Starbucks did to deal with the issue. I've never seen uh-huh. them actually close a Starbucks, close their business for any period of time to actually have really necessary racial conversations. I've never seen, and there's been a lot of companies in the news that have wow. racial tensions and racial problems, but they've not responded uh-huh, uh-huh. the way that Starbucks has. Now, granted, can somebody say that they could have done a better job in responding? They could have, but I, I really applaud their effort, and it made me feel good as an investor because that's why I invested in that okay. company because I believe in their corporate mission and their corporate policy was, was that of a company that says we're going to take responsibility because something in our system is messed up, and I really appreciate uh. that. So, again, it's about understanding that company that you're investing in. Become a student of that company. So when things like that happen, you can say, oh, is this the company? It's kind of like when you're dating. Is this, is this the, the person? Uh-huh. Is this the girl? Is this the guy I've always uh-huh. known? Is it? Is it, is, it, is it you? You know? Um, and, and you say, and it's kind of like that's kind of where the rubber meets the road. You know, if it's always sunny, sunny days, you know, and it's always sunny in Philadelphia, like as the show said, you know, then you never know what that company is made of. So, again, it's about being a student, understanding how their company works. So those are my, pretty much my final thoughts about being an investor, is that changing your mind oh is pretty much the, the biggest thing when you're going through the door. Making it a habit, just like excellence, making investing a habit, and then also becoming okay. a student of what you think you know to become a more uh. fluid person when it comes to being an investor. Because when you're an investor, you have responsibility. Because as an investor, yes, you're uh-huh. entitled to dividends, which are profits, you're, but you're also entitled to make um, to elect a board of directors, which makes really big uh-huh, decisions uh-huh. for the company in terms of mergers, but it also makes sure. decisions about, about who's going to be the CEO, who's going to be those really high-up executives. Those people, the people that you elect as a board of directors are kind of pretty much your proxy and to do, like, what's right. So, again, it's about becoming a student of that company, I mean, and what the company is doing and finding out who the board of directors is going to be and making your, exercising your right to vote in those circumstances. So those are things that are, are the biggest things about investing. And just do it. you got to go out and do it. Do it. Yeah. Do it. I mean, not yeah. every investment is going to be, like, that. perfect. Exactly. Uh-huh. Like, uh-huh. open a Robin Hood. Open um, 
a stop call and just start. And then as you get yeah. done, it's kind of like riding a bike. It's that your your technique gets better. You're like, oh yeah, my I can if I if I ride this way, my my pedal stroke becomes more efficient. So it's just like that. It's something that you do over time. The quick, the earlier that you start, the better you get at it over time. Mm, I love that. I love that. You touched on so many key points. So if anyone wants to stay connected to you, Courtney, um, they can visit you on your website at theivyinvestor.com. They can also connect with you on Twitter and Instagram also at the Ivy Investor. And then you also do have a Facebook page where you post your content, your um, events that you have going on, any master classes that you might be doing. I know you've done one on marijuana. Could you talk about that for a little bit? <laughs> I thought that, that was a little interesting. <laughs> um, <laughs> so um, marijuana has been very hot recently, um, you know, as a lot of um, – so generally marijuana is a legal in the United States for medicinal and recreational use. Um, But um, there are some states that are like, you know what, we're going to allow it for medicinal use because we think there's a a value there for our citizens. Um, And as long as it doesn't cross state lines, it's not so problematic. But anyway, um, but Canada has legalized it both on on the medicinal level and the recreational level. So it a lot of there's a lot of Canadian companies that are out there that may be good investments or at least um, that you want to look at um, to start investing in because they're up, I mean all things being equal they're about to blow up they're I mean they're really okay. I mean the medicinal marijuana uh, you know industry was big but now they're adding the recreational use so it's for medicinal medicinal uses you had to have a card you had to be approved by your doctor. But if you're recreational, it's just anybody who wants to use it. So, again, the, the um, growth is going to be a lot bigger. Um, and then also the FDA has, made, has approved its first marijuana-based drug in its history oh, wow. um, for consumption. And that happened, uh, I believe it happened in June, like late June, early July that happened. So it was approved. Now, it's not an American-based company, but it's actually a drug that is approved in the company you can invest in. Um, but then also there is another marijuana IPO, which is an initial public offering of a company that um, is marijuana-based. Um, and so there's a lot of different ways to get involved in the marijuana, you know, um, investing world. You can invest directly. I still really only suggest Canadian companies given kind of the, the interesting environment in the United States. But then there's also United States companies that you can invest in that are what we call marijuana adjacent. So they get a benefit of marijuana, but they're not necessarily investing in marijuana. And then you have pool mm-hmm. investments, which are like ETFs and mutual funds that made that actually kind of pool all those investments together and you can kind of like you get a basket. So it's a little bit more of diversification. And because marijuana is a more riskier um, industry because it's very new and nobody really knows what's going on with it, you may want to say, you know what, I don't want to invest in one company, but I feel a little bit better investing in an index, which is a basket of companies. So there's multiple ways to get into it. So that's kind of the way I present the marijuana class. So people kind of feel like if they're interested in investing, they know what the background is, kind of the history of marijuana in the United States. But then on top of that, they understand kind of like the legal implications. So when they can start kind of like becoming a student of the industry, so they can kind of know like, okay, I want to pivot out of this or I want to pivot into that. Oh, I remember that being an important thing for the marijuana industry. I think that's something I might want to get into if I learn more about it. So it's about creating Mm -hmm. an understanding of the industry so people can make, you know, educated investments. And not everybody may take, uh-huh. think, you know what, 
I'm going to go out and buy, you know, a marijuana company. But some people <laughs> mm-hmm, say, but mm-hmm. I just want people to have the tools available to them um, so they can mm-hmm. say, okay, I feel comfortable in doing this. These are the things that I should look at. Okay, okay, awesome. So if anyone is interested in learning more about Courtney, again, you can find her at the ivyinvestor.com. Twitter and Instagram, and also on Facebook um, as the IB Investor to stay connected with her and to learn all about her events, her master classes, and where she's actually speaking. And I've noticed that you've been doing a lot of speaking engagements, which is truly awesome. Investing is a wealth pillar. So thank you so much, Courtney, for joining us on the Wealth Stylist Podcast. It has been an honor to have you as a guest. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you love this episode, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss a thing. I'd love to get to know you and hear all about your passions, dreams, and how this podcast has helped you. So please be sure to leave me a review. For more beyond this podcast, visit me at wealthstylist.com to choose your own adventure. This includes joining my free global community, The Wealth Circle, to read the latest on my blog, and to connect with me on social media at Wealth Stylist. Thank you again for tuning in to the Wealth Stylist Podcast.